Amen. You can have a seat. So good to see you this morning. In case you didn't know, I am more convinced than you are that God is never going to let me go. And I proved that because I sang it like an extra time when we stopped. I don't know if you heard me or not. I was still just never going to let me. It was bad. It was really bad. But I was singing from my heart. And it was a joy to worship with you together this morning and to be together with you today as we continue in our series called Journeys. Um, in case you don't know, my name is Kyle, and it's just um, wonderful to be with you today. Uh, I don't know about your summer. Our summer as a family has just been blowing by uh, rather rapidly. Um, my wife and I, we, um, we share a calendar, you know, on our phone. We share a calendar. It keeps us literally on the same page and in the right place at the right time. And it's very important that we put our things in our calendar so we don't get things mixed up with just church and life and uh, her business and our kids and everything else going on. And we were rocking right through. We had everything going. We had all kinds of stuff mapped out over the next several days and on our calendar. And uh, I was hanging out with uh, Luke, one of our pastors, um, and he was talking about kids camp. And we were talking about it, and we always go because our kids go, and we get to hang out with them. And, and I was talking about, yeah, we're excited about it. And he was talking about leaving on Sunday. And I was like, yeah. And I thought he was talking about next Sunday. But kids camp starts today, this afternoon. We leave this afternoon, and we got home, and we kind of conversed. And somehow, like, we never put that on our calendar we had to like adjust a lot of things to be ready to go this afternoon, but we've got it and we've got it ready to go and summer is like almost over. And as quick as that has flown by in the experiences that you and I have had this summer, hopefully a good summer, we think about Paul and we think about these men and these women in the book of Acts and all they've experienced, all the journeys, thousands of miles they've put down across the world by stepping one foot in front of the other or getting on a boat. And man, just so many amazing things have happened. And today we are going to get to see where another incredible story takes place in the Word of God in Acts chapter 19. I want to invite you to open your Bibles with me now to Acts chapter 19. We're going to pick up in verse number 1. We're going to look at the majority of the chapter. I'm going to say a lot because just like summer flies by, my time up here flies by because there's always so much more that we could talk about. There's almost so much more truth that we could expose and we could, we could camp out on. And I've got a lot to say today, and I pray that you'll be ready to hear it, and I pray it will encourage you and help you in your journey and in your life. If he, uh, excuse me, Acts chapter 1, beginning, Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse number 1. Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse number 1. It says, While Apollos was in Corinth, which is another city that Paul had spent time in and God blessed, Paul traveled through the interior regions until he reached Ephesus on the coast where he found several believers and or disciples. And you find this word, believers and or disciples, used a lot to describe followers of Jesus. People that were ready to do what Jesus wanted them to do. Drop down now to verse number 8. Then Paul went into the synagogue. That was kind of his MO. If you've been following through in the book of Acts and you've been listening in, it's kind of what Paul would do. He would go to the synagogues. The synagogues would have been a place of teaching for the Jews. They would have gathered something like this. They would have had a teacher stand up and teach them from the Old Testament. And so he rolls into the synagogue. Paul went to the synagogue and preached boldly. That sounds like Paul, doesn't it? For the next three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. Verse 9. But some became stubborn, rejecting his message 
and publicly speaking against the way. In case you haven't caught it so far, uh, this term the way was an early term used to call what we now call Christianity. So if you see the words the way in scripture, it's either referring to Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life, or it's referring to the movement of people that were following him who was the way. And that's what it's referring to here. It goes on in verse 9 to say, So Paul left the synagogue and took the believers with him. Then he held daily discussions at the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for the next two years so that people throughout the province of Asia both Jews and Greeks heard the word of the Lord. Now, if this would have said throughout the province of Arkansas, this would be a big deal, right? I mean, can you imagine the whole state of Arkansas because of one city and one gathering of God's people, the church, doing this work of proclaiming the gospel, the whole state of Arkansas. But let's just, can we agree, like Asia has more people in a square mile than we do in the whole state of Arkansas, Right? They just, tons of people over there. And here's what the Word of God says. Because of this group at Ephesus, and because of the bold preaching of Paul that led to the bold teaching of others, the whole province of Asia had heard about the Word of the Lord. The city of Ephesus, it's a magnificent place in its time. It's still, the ruins are still there today. I've been there. It's an incredible place. Um, at the time that Paul would have been there, at least a couple hundred thousand people lived there in that city. It was known for a lot of things. It was uh, very well known for its arts and theater and music. It also was home to the world's largest library, just a massive structure full of books upon books upon books. Um, very influential in its time. And it also was home, and we'll talk about this later, but it was home to one of the ancient seven wonders of the world. And so Ephesus was just this really cool place. It also had an amphitheater there that uh, held about 25,000 people, and we'll see that in Scripture as we continue to read. Check out verse number 11 as the Word of God continues to go forth. God gave Paul the power to perform, and notice this word, unusual miracles. Now, if you have been reading along and checking out the book of Acts, you've seen miracles happen throughout the church. In the early church, you have uh, looked into the Gospels potentially, and you saw that Jesus did miracles. Well, this one says, God gave Paul the power to perform unusual miracles. So even um, uh, more um, out there and uh, more unbelievable, if you will, than all the other miracles have been happening, Paul is now empowered to do some things they haven't seen before. And it's going to describe that in verse number 12. When handkerchiefs or aprons that had merely touched his, Paul's skin, were placed on sick people, they were healed of their diseases and evil spirits were expelled. Did you catch what that just said? So if somebody got close enough to Paul and they could like throw the little hanky over there and it touch him and they get it back, they could go and they could actually take that and it could touch other people and they would be healed. Now this is not the power of Paul, this is the power of God. And God has chosen to do some unusual, miraculous things through Paul and we're going to see why he did that. We also know that this verse of scripture is where some people today have got the erroneous, horrible Ugh, make me angry idea of going on TV and saying for $19.99 plus shipping and handling, we will send you this hanky, right? You've seen shows like that, right? 
And this is where they get it from. But I'm here to tell you, you had better not use the name of Jesus nor declare to have his power and try to use it for your own gain. You better not do that. And if you're wondering why, we're going to find out why. Keep reading scripture. Verse number 13. A group of Jews was traveling from town to town casting out evil spirits. They tried to use the name of the Lord Jesus in their incantation, saying, I command you in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, to come out. Okay, like, if you're paying attention, you're reading about evil spirits and or demons, and maybe you're saying, okay, cool story, bro, but, like, that's, like, ancient, like, primitive stuff going on. That doesn't take place today. Uh, that's not really, uh, you know, going on today. We don't have people with their eyes rolling in the back of their head and, and doing, you know, crazy. St- wait, wait a minute. We, we don't have crazy stuff that happens in our world today? But let me make it a little more normal for you, and it's just as evil. I would suggest to you that we do have people walking around. Maybe their eyes aren't going in the back of their head necessarily, but they're walking around day after day, and somebody is telling them how to spend their time, how to spend their money, how to use their bodies, and how to go about life. And they have given themselves to it. And they just almost like robots, like, what do you want me to do? Okay, I'll go do it. And here they are encountering these evil spirits. Was, were evil spirits a thing of the ancient world? Yes. Are they a thing of today? The answer is yes. Look at verse number 14. Seven sons of Sceva, a leading priest, were doing this. So these seven sons of Sceva were kind of like, you know, the local Ghostbusters, right? So when people then would say, who are you going to call? They would say, seven sons of Sceva. Not the same ring to it, right? But that's kind of what was going on. These evil things were happening. These demonic spirits were there. And they were like, hey, we got this demonic spirit over here. We need to get rid of them. We heard about these guys, these sons of Sceva. Let's call them in and maybe they can do something about it. Well, it continues on. Look now in verse number 15. But one time they tried it. They tried to do what? To cast out demons in the name of Jesus. It says, but one time they tried it. The evil spirit replied. Now, I don't know what kind of voice an evil spirit sounds like, but I'm probably like you. I'm not thinking about a pleasant voice. But ultimately, here's what this evil spirit said in verse number 15. I know Jesus, and I know Paul, but who are you? This is a drop-the-mic moment for the evil spirit. Do you get what's happening here? This evil spirit's like, I, I recognize Jesus because, like, we've kind of been around a long time. Like, Jesus is like the son of God. We, we know him. That's our enemy. And we know Paul because Paul's been believing in Jesus, teaching Jesus, and preaching Jesus, and doing miracles in the name of Jesus. But you guys, you just came along, and you picked up the name of Jesus, and you picked up the name of Paul. You don't even believe in Jesus, and you're out here telling us what to do. Who are you? Here's one thing I want you to know. Evil spirits... And everything they represent, which is Satan and all of his forces, here's one thing I want you to know. They could care less about you. They don't care what your name is. They don't care where you came from. All they care about is doing you destruction. They don't know who these guys are. They're just out, they're out posing. They're out saying that we have the power of Jesus. But they didn't have the power of Jesus. And we're going to see how they didn't have the power of Jesus. Look now in verse number 16. 
Then the man with the evil spirit, okay, so you've got a guy who's like possessed. The man with the evil spirit leaped on them, overpowered them, and attacked them with such violence that they, the seven of them, fled from the house naked and battered. Any UFC fans in the house? Any UFC fans in the house? Anybody? Anybody? All right. Like two of you were proud enough to say that in public, and there's a bunch more of you that are like, can I say that in church, right? Anyway, when you're in a fight, who do you not want to leave the fight up to as to whether you win it or not? The judges. Thank you very much. You never want to leave it in the hands of the judges because if it comes down to, you know, the judges, they could pick you or they could pick them. It's kind of a judgment call. It may be an opinion. It may be a preference. But here's how you know for sure whether someone wins a fight or not. When you knock somebody out and they're laying out cold, you take it out of the hands of the judges. You win the fight. Ding, ding, ding. Winner, winner, chicken dinner, right? You are the winner. Let me tell you another way you can know for sure as to who won the fight. If there is a fight and you get your pants beat off of you, you lost the fight. It says they fled the house naked and battered. I mean, beaten up and bruised, no clothes on. How embarrassing. Like I said, don't you dare use the name of God nor claim to have his power and use it for your own gain. It's not a smart move. Verse 17, this is where it, I think, starts getting really, really cool. Verse 17, the story of what happened spread quickly all throughout, um, all through Ephesus to Jews and Greeks alike. Facebook and Instagram were lighting up like a Christmas tree. Everybody knew this happened. Can you imagine the video footage that would have been, you know, going around, circulating? Man, these seven dudes, you know, the sons of Sceva, who are you going to call those guys? Well, don't call them anymore because we were there and we saw them go in the house and we saw them come out of the house. They went in with clothes on and they came out without clothes on. They do not have what they said they had. Okay? The word is spread. Verse 17 goes on to say, a solemn fear descended on the city. And the name of the Lord Jesus was greatly honored. Verse 18. Many who became believers, everybody say that word with me. They did what? They, it's highlighted. Go for it. Confessed. Okay, say it one more time. Confessed their sinful practices. Okay? Many who became believers confessed their sinful practices. Well, who confessed? Well, depending on what translation you're reading from or depending on what scholar you read, um, there is debate as to whether or not these were people who had just on that day decided to believe in Jesus and become a follower of Jesus. And those were the people that confessed their sinful practice. And then there are those that would debate that this is actually people who had already believed in Jesus decided to follow Jesus, but this moment gripped them so much that there was still some stuff in their life, and they confessed their sinful practice. Ask me which one it is, and I will tell you what radio said when he was offered the choice of dessert. Both. I think both happened on that day. 
I think there were people who had never believed in Jesus and said, oh, it's all hocus pocus. I don't believe in it. They heard this story about the sons of Sceva. They were watching what Paul had done. They had been hearing the gospel, and they said, today is the day of salvation, and I'm confessing it all. Here it is, all my sinful practices. And I also believe that there were people who had already said, like many of us in this room have, I believe in Jesus. I believe that he died for my sins. I believe that he rose from the dead, and I'm going to confess the stuff that's in my life today because it should not be there. See, believers, listen to me. The unbelieving world, they know we're not perfect. And everybody in the room goes, you can't tell everybody that because they think we are. I mean, we go to church on Sunday. We don't do the things they do. We're perfect. The unbelieving world knows we're not perfect. Are we going to be honest this morning and go ahead and say, "Uh uh-huh, that's us. We're not perfect. Come on now. We're not perfect, right? Now, if we go around saying, well, I'm a follower of Jesus and I'm perfect, guess what we're doing? We are pushing away the world because they know we're not perfect. They know we're not perfect. What they're wondering is, are we different? They, They know we're not perfect. That's not a question mark for them. They're looking at us and saying, are you different? You go to church, are you Are you different? You say you believe in Jesus. Are you different? You sing songs in a public gathering that, you know, I don't even understand. Like, are you different? You go to, you go to a group with people on Sunday evenings and you, you get in the Bible and, and you say that, you know, you're studying about God. Are, are you different? That's what the world is wondering when they look at me and they look at you who are believers. Like, are you different? You see, they know because... They know what we know, that sin is real and it's in our lives. And they're wondering if we just cover up our sin or if we do something different and we confess our sin. And in this moment, these people decided to do what was different and they decided to confess their sin. Again, they're not wondering if we're perfect. They're wondering if we are Different. Admitting that we are wrong and that we are in need of a Savior is different. You're like, well, I prayed a long time ago. We were singing that song. And like Tommy, I went back to Bog Springs or wherever it was. And that was a long time ago. Let me just go ahead and help you understand something, believers. You are as desperate for a Savior today as you were 15, 20 minutes or 15, 20 years ago when you confessed him as your Lord and Savior. Did you hear what I said? You still need your Savior today as much as you needed him on the day you prayed to ask him into your heart and your life. And the world's like, are you different? Are you just one of those people that pray a prayer and then you go on about saying, I'm good and you're not? They're wondering if we're different. Confession proves that we are different. I just want to encourage you this morning, and I don't know how all this potentially can encourage you, but it should. You, and I'm talking to believers right now, listen to me. You're not the only one that has issues with sin. You're you going to talk about the person sitting next to me? No, I'm going to talk about the person talking to you. I struggle with sin myself. Out of the many that I could have picked, I'll pick this one. I struggle and wrestle with anger. I wrestle with it. I like being right. I like being heard. I like being louder than everybody else when it comes to that. And guess where it shows up really, really often in my life? Parenting. Well, you're the dad. You're supposed to be right. Well, whatever. 
Mine doesn't show up very holy a lot of times. It just doesn't show up very holy a lot of times. And it's not good. And there's a lot of times where I have to say, God, I was out of line there. I, I was angry, and it wasn't good. And there's times I have to go to my kids and say, you know what? I, 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 I lost control there. That was sinful. That was wrong. I shouldn't have acted like that. I shouldn't have responded like that. I shouldn't have talked like that. Sin is something we all struggle with. The question is, how are we dealing with it? Are we just covering it up or are we confessing it? You see, when you confess your sin, God begins to move mightily. Look at what happens next. Verse number 19. A number of them who have been practicing sorcery brought their incantation books and burned them at a public bonfire. The value of the books was several million dollars. And you can look that up and figure out how much you think that means and all that kind of stuff. This translation renders it several million dollars. Here's what I know. What they burned that day was worth more than I will ever make in my life. This was valuable, valuable stuff. It would have made more sense if they'd have said, you know what? We're not going to do this anymore, but we could sell these books And then we could have a lot of money to do good stuff. But instead, they got real with their sin. They wanted it to stop right where it was. They wanted to cut it off. And they said, you know what? This stuff is evil, and we don't want anybody else to get their hands on it, even if it costs us a lot. Listen to me. Confession always costs you a lot. But let me tell you what it gets you. Freedom. Put a price tag on that. Put a price tag on freedom. Confession will cost you, but it will provide freedom. And on this day, they decided to pile it up and to burn it. The closest thing, I guess, that I've really ever seen happen close to this, and it's kind of ironic that I'm talking about this on the, the day that we're headed off to you know, church camp, but I can remember as a teenager going to church camp and, and someone would stand up like this and they would preach the gospel and preach the truth and God would work on our hearts and uh, I'll never forget a certain group of my friends, um, they, they decided that they were going to confess some things, and they decided to really get clean with it, and they decided, you know what, we want to cut this off. They didn't read this scripture, they just did it by the leadership of the Holy Spirit, and at the time, date myself just a little bit, they got their CDs when they got back home. And I'm not talking about Garth Brooks, you know what I'm saying? I'm talking about they had some stuff that they were listening to that was evil, that was dark, that was corrupt. And they got together, and they started a bonfire, and they started chunking them in one after the other. Just chunking them in. Guess what God did? God began blessing in a huge, huge way. Again, go on now in verse number 20 to see how God blesses. So the message about the Lord spread widely and had a powerful effect. So the message of the Lord spread wildly and had a powerful effect. Now, is the gospel powerful? Absolutely. Can God change anyone? Absolutely. But you've got to understand that when you and I, who are believers, are willing to get real with our sin and confess it and get rid of it, that then it opens the floodgates for more and more people who do not believe in Jesus now to come to know Jesus. If you are sitting there thinking, ooh, if somebody finds out about my sin, I'll be ruined and my testimony and my Christianity, and they won't let me back in the church again. What if we went the other way and you let it be known? It 
was forgiven by Jesus, we celebrated that freedom, and more and more people came to know Jesus. That's what we see in Scripture over and over again. Going underneath the surface with our sin never, never brings about fruit. It brings about destruction. Here's what I want you to get. I want you to wrestle with this. Total confession of sin in our hearts leads to bold profession of Jesus in our city. And I don't want to limit it to our city, but I want us to get a good eye on what this effect is. I want you to think about your neighbors. I want you to think about your friends. I want you to think about your coworkers. Total confession of sin leads to powerful, bold profession of Jesus in our city. I would suggest to you that some of us don't talk about Jesus very much because we have unconfessed sin in our life. And we know that if we start talking about Jesus, people are going to start looking at us more and they're eventually going to see what is in our life that shouldn't be there. So why don't we flip it this morning? Instead of talking about Jesus this morning with our neighbors, why don't we precede that with saying here and now, God, I am real with you. You know what's going on. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to confess it all. Forgive me all of it so I can be free and empowered to go talk to my friends about Jesus. And when they point out my sin, I've got one word for them, forgiven. And they can experience it too. Total confession of sin in our hearts leads to bold profession of Jesus in our city. Now, if you follow the story of Acts very often, and good things start happening, and God starts moving, there's always a dun-dun-dun moment, right? It always comes in the book of Acts. Here it comes. Drop down to verse 23. About that time, serious trouble developed in Ephesus concerning the way, concerning Christianity, concerning Paul, concerning these miracles, concerning all this confession, concerning all this burning of the books, some trouble has begun to brew. Some people don't like it. Verse 23, 24, excuse me. It began with Demetrius, a silversmith who had a large business manufacturing silver shrines of the Greek goddess Artemis. He kept many craftsmen busy. So it's almost like this guy got pretty good at what he did. He started hiring other people, and he had a bunch of people working for him. I mean, this guy's like on the top of the pyramid. He is working the system great. He's got a great business, and it's all about this goddess named Artemis. Let me tell you a little bit about Artemis to give you context to help you grasp this for just a second. Artemis was the goddess of the city. She found her home in her own temple, the temple of Artemis, and that temple was known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Some historians that can go back and find writings can actually show you writings where people who lived during that time who visited several of the seven wonders of the world would say, would argue, that the temple of Artemis was the greatest of them all. That's where she lived. That's where she resided. That's where this goddess was. She was a goddess of fertility. She was a goddess of blessing. She was a goddess of provision. Some of you may have a translation or you know enough about Artemis to know that she's also called Diana. We're not going with that name because our secretary is named Diana, so we're leaving that one out. And so, uh, anyway, it's a nickname is really what it is. The, 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 the name is Artemis. Nickname would have been Diana. They called her by both names. There she had her abode in her own temple, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Here's a question for you. Where did Artemis come from? Legend has it 
that a meteorite fell from the heavens and landed outside the city of Ephesus. Some craftsmen went and with their own hands created this image and called her Artemis. Can we admit that's kind of anticlimactic? Think about it. Where'd your God come from? Oh, this meteorite fell out of heaven. Cool. Yeah, and then some dudes like went and chiseled it out and like, there she is. So some dudes made your God. Yeah. So you worship this God that dudes like created with their own hands. Yeah. Like you pay homage to her. Yeah. You sacrifice her. Oh, yeah. Like you let her tell you what you do. Yeah. Like she's your life. Yeah. Anybody else got some words that describe that? I mean, the first one that comes to mind for me is like goofy. But it's real for them, right? Just like some of the things we worship are very, very real. Look now, verse 25. He, this guy named Demetrius, kind of this kingpin of the whole thing, he called them together, all of his workers, and he said, uh, called them together along with the others employed in similar trades and addressed them as follows. Kind of a town hall, we got to do something about this kind of moment. Gentlemen, you know that our wealth comes from this business. You start messing with people's pocketbooks and you get people fired up. When do people get hot at your workplace? When they start cutting, start talking about cutting your retirement, right? Cutting back on your health care. Everybody gets, yeah, we got to do something about this, right? You get a union together or whatever it takes, right? We've got to make sure we get what's coming our way. Like, this dude Paul, like, he is cutting into our pocketbooks. we got to do something about it. This is about business now. This has gone from religion to business. And maybe, just maybe, business could be religion. Like, we got to do something about it. I mean, these guys, they made small images of Artemis and sold them out of silver. They made big images out of Artemis and sold them as silver. I mean, they had it going. They had bumper stickers on the chariots. Artemis was like eating up like this Darwin creature, right? I mean, like they were making it. It was business. Things were rolling. They were doing good. And now things are not. Confession was costing them business. These were their customers that were saying, we don't believe in Artemis anymore. We don't believe in those dark things anymore. We're burning these books. We don't want our idols anymore. We're following Jesus. Confession cost them business. Verse 26. But as you have seen and heard this man Paul, this guy named Demetrius is continuing to talk, but as you have seen this, heard this man Paul has persuaded many people that handmade gods aren't really gods at all. It is suggested that this was just kind of a, 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 a go-to line that Paul used often. And you got to admit, it's pretty catchy, right? Handmade gods aren't really gods at all. I'm thinking maybe somebody got smart and said, let's make our own bumper stickers. And they started seeing some chariots with some stickers on it said, handmade gods aren't really gods at all. Right? I mean, whoa, 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 whoa. Like Artemis, like, we, whoa, this isn't working. It goes on to say, and he's done this not only here in Ephesus, but throughout the entire province. So this didn't just affect us here, but like all the people that come here to see her, like they're getting worried and they're going to quit coming. I mean, this is a tourism town, right? We come here to get a good show, to hear good music, eat good food, to go to the library, and to go to the temple Artemis. 
and to buy an image of her made in the very city that she dwells. This guy's affecting everything. But this phrase, handmade gods, aren't really gods at all. It's a great thing to write down and remember. It's such an incredible truth. Verse 27. Of course, I'm not just talking about the loss of public respect for our business. I'm also concerned that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will lose its influence and that Artemis, this magnificent goddess worshipped throughout the province of Asia and all throughout the world, will be robbed of her great prestige. Wait a minute, I thought Artemis was a god and she protected them and now they got to protect her? Verse number 28. At this their anger boiled and they began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Soon the whole city was filled with confusion. Everyone rushed to the amphitheater, which, by the way, held about 25,000 people. They packed in there, dragging along Gaius and Aristotle, that guy, who were Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. Paul wanted to go in too, but the believers wouldn't let him. Some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, also sent a message to him begging him not to risk his life by entering the amphitheater. You've got an angry mob on your hands at this point. Verse 32. Inside, the people were all shouting, some one thing and some another. Everything was in confusion. In fact, the most of them didn't even know why they were there. Verse 33. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander forward and told him to explain the situation. Lucky guy. He motioned for silence and tried to speak. I imagine it was kind of like at the pool the other day when I kind of got tricked into going on movie night at the pool back here. Watching a pool, watching a movie at the pool with like, 200 screaming kids. Just didn't work out so well. You know what I'm saying? And the dude was walking around with the mic. Hey, uh, we're starting a movie. Can everybody be quiet? Hey, everybody, we're starting a movie. Can you be quiet? You know how well that went over? Boop, didn't go over. Here he is. They're screaming. They're shouting. They don't know what they're hollering about. Hey, hey, hey. He tried to speak. Verse 34. But when the crowd realized he was a Jew, they started shouting again and kept it up for two Hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. I believe probably at one point, one half said Arta, and the other half said Miss. Arta, Miss, Arta, Miss. Before we miss this, you know, we think, man, those people were silly. They were primitive. They were archaic in their thinking about this issue of idolatry. Let me toss this in your lap, okay? Let me toss this up. It's coming on the screen. Here it is. Write it down. An idol is anything that promises a life of security and joy apart from God. An idol is anything that promises a life of security and joy apart from God. And now here comes the follow-up question. What is this in your life? What is it in your life that you are clinging on to for your security and joy apart from God? If you haven't caught on to what we're asking right now, we are asking the question, what is your idol? What is your idol? Well, I'm not like going to some like temple and some woman carved out of some meteor. No, what is it that you are looking to, believing in, trusting in, going for, constantly seeking as your joy and security apart from 
God. Now, when we talked about idols and we were getting prepared for this and met with our other pastors and whatnot, I was going to throw a couple things out there that I think would maybe hit everybody, like money and sex, right? And that would probably get a bunch of you in the room, and you're like, oh, man, don't talk about these. But one of our pastors gave these three things, okay? He said, baseball, hunting, and Razorbacks. I'll give you five guesses who it was. What? Things that promise a life of security and joy apart from God. Maybe, maybe it's marriage. Maybe, maybe, maybe you're single and like you're hoping life right now to get everything the way you want it to be and to really feel the way you want it to feel and to have this joy and have is to get married. Like, man, if I could just find the one, things would, be, things would be where I needed to be for me right now. Things didn't go well here and didn't go well. That relationship didn't work. Maybe even that marriage didn't work. But if I got the right marriage, then, man, I would find joy, satisfaction, and security. Oh, man, I would find that. And you're hanging on to that right now. You're hanging on to that. And let me tell you what's going to happen when you get married. You're going to make that person your God, and they cannot fulfill what you are looking for. Like, that's easy for you to say, man, like, you're married. I know, and I have kids. Parents, how easy is it for us to make it all about our kids? And they're going to be our source of joy. And they're going to be our security. And we find everything we're looking for, at least we're looking for everything we need in them. Maybe it's health. Maybe it's success. What is it that you've been trusting and clinging to to provide joy and security in your life? These are the false promises of false gods over and over again. Every single age of time going throughout history. Same false gods, same lies. Go back to the original story, Adam and Eve. Lies. Hey, this can give you what you're looking for. This can bring you the level of joy and security that you've always wanted. And idols today just continue to promise us these false promises. What is it that you've been trusting in, clinging to, to provide joy and security in your life? I want to throw this on the screen because I, I imagine there's some tension in the room for a lot of different reasons. And I want to speak to one part of that tension, and that is this. When we turn good things into God things, we create idols. Now, I will just go ahead and tell you, everything I listed, and I could relist them, but we started with money, and we kind of kept going down through there. Everything we've listed so far, they're good things. Marriage is a good thing. Kids are a good thing. Money's a good thing. Sex is a good thing. I mean, all kinds of things are good things. But when you take those good things and you make them God things, you have created an idol. So today, we're not saying you need to sacrifice your kids. Right? That's not what we're saying at all. That's what false idols ask for. Okay? That's what false gods ask for. I guess all idols are false, right? Idols and false gods. That's what they, that's what they ask for. No. We're talking about you allowing the good things to be good and allowing God to be God and the provider of all good things. But when you take a good thing, no matter what it is, you make it a God thing, you've created an idol. And I'll just go ahead and say this. God is better than your idols. God is better than your idols. Let me give you one way that God is better. Idols 
want and want. They never get enough from you. They are never satisfied. You can never give them enough. You can never do enough. You can never give them everything that they want from you. They want you to sacrifice. That's what they want. And guess what? When false gods don't get what they want from you, guess what they are known to do? To curse you. To curse you. But on the contrary, God curses himself for you. Do you realize that's what Jesus did on the cross? That was God allowing himself to be accursed for our sin, for our failure, for our inability to give him what he so royally and richly and gloriously deserves. And he says, you know what, I'll take your curse. I'll become your sacrifice. I'll do something for you that you cannot do for yourself. I will make a way for all of this ugly, sinful stuff in your life to be washed away and to be cleansed so that we could be forgiven when we do what? When we confess our sin and our idolatry. Oh, man, that's, that's a word for unbelievers today, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And I would say to you that, man, if you've never believed in Jesus, today is the day. Confess your sin, allow him to forgive you and change you. But listen, it's just as strong of a word for believers today. Confess your sin. Confess your sin. Give him your idols. Let him be the Savior that he already is for you. Take advantage of what he has given you in redemption and live it out and be free. Again, total confession of sin leads to bold profession of Jesus in our city. You want your friends, you want your neighbors, you want your relatives, you want the people that we do life with in this place called Saline County. This group of people right here decides to get real with their sin and get real with God. It will happen. Did you hear me? It will happen. You're like, so are we to that point that you're like, you think we should confess our sin? That's exactly where we are right now here in this moment. Let me explain how this is going to look for you. In just a few moments, uh, the band's going to come up. They're going to play a song. It's going to be an awesome opportunity for you, an opportunity for you to respond to God. How do I respond to God? You can respond right where you're sitting. You can respond coming to talk with someone. Pastors will be up here. We can pray with you. We can help you in any kind of way that you need. But it's a time to respond. And believers, I'm talking to you first. Listen to me, believers. I'm talking to you first. Today is the day for us to get right with God. If we want our lost, unbelieving friends to experience Jesus, we need to experience him today. We need to experience him today. I'm not saying you've lost relationship with him. I'm not saying you've lost your salvation. I'm just telling you you're not living it out right now, potentially. And you've got things that you are holding on to. You are holding on to. We want you to respond this morning. Some other ways that you can, and we want to encourage you to respond, is you can have an opportunity to respond and just worshiping God through the song that's sung, just like maybe like you haven't in a long time. Just worship Him. Maybe you're thinking about the forgiveness that you've experienced, and you just got to get it out. Like, thank you. It's going to be an opportunity to give. The generosity that's represented in this people is just incredible. 
we're able to go forth doing what we do as a church because of your generosity. Thank you so, so much. If it's your first time here, you got that card, it's a communication card, drop that in that bucket. So as we pray in just a moment, um, I'm going to ask you right now just to go ahead and bow your heads and close your eyes. Nobody's going to come to you. Nobody's going to tap you on the shoulder. Nobody's going to say anything to you. Nothing, nothing weird's going to happen, okay? If you just bow your head and close your eyes. If you take both hands, if you're able to do if you take both hands and just ball them up in a fist. Take both hands and ball them up in a fist. Just lay them on your lap. Take both hands, ball them up in a fist, and just lay them on your lap. And for a moment, I want you to consider what you are potentially holding on to, that you are trusting in, that you are clinging to apart from God for your joy and your security. What is it? What is it that you are holding on to? In a moment, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to give you a little bit of time to simply, right there with God, confess those things, Potentially open those fists up and leave those palms open up to God in trust and release of everything that you've got and allow him to do a work in you that only he can do. Would you during this time just by faith and by prayer and by belief in our great God, open those hands, confessing, believing, trusting in him and in him alone. I'll pray and give you an opportunity to do just that.